The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. We are grateful for a world that belongs to our Father, aren't we? This is our Father's world. Whether the world wants to recognize it or not, uh, we know whose world this uh, truly is. He owns every square inch of this planet, and uh, we're grateful that uh, one day the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and will be recognized as the, uh, uh, the rightful ruler over the, the world that God has created. So just so grateful for that. So why don't you take your Bibles with me? and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, and the title for my message today is The Gospel According to a Thief. The Gospel According to a Thief. Uh, The Bible lets us know in Luke chapter 19, in verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And perhaps there's no greater example of the Lord saving one that was lost than the thief on the cross. If anyone fits the description of a lost individual, the thief would qualify. This was a death row inmate who pleaded guilty to his crimes. This wasn't a case of mistaken identity. This wasn't a setup. He wasn't taking the heat for a crime he didn't commit. By his own admission, he was guilty. He was a self-proclaimed sinner, and he was receiving exactly what he deserved for his deeds. And if it wasn't for the solitary testimony of Luke, we wouldn't have, we would have assumed that uh, he received what he deserved for his deeds after his death, as well as in his death. If all we knew about this man's life was what Matthew and Mark provided for us, the only thing that we would know about him was that he was a blasphemer. Matthew 27 and verse 44 says the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 32, it says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And if that's all that we would have known, we would have uh, thought of this man as uh, nothing more than a sinner who rightly received what he deserved. But Luke, among all the gospel writers, provides us with the testimony of this sinner's conversion. And his conversion for us becomes the most noteworthy example of a deathbed confession. J.C. Ryle, evangelical English bishop of the 19th century wrote these words. He says, these verses deserve to be printed in letters of gold. They have probably been the salvation of myriads of souls. Multitudes will thank God to all eternity that the Bible contains this story of the penitent thief. And uh, we can praise God for the hope contained in this account. And uh, we'll be in Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. Uh, But for the sake of context, we'll back up to verse 33. Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 33. Why don't you follow with me as I read? When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And Father, we are so grateful for this, your word. Father, we pray that you would... uh, Use your word, Lord, as an encouragement uh, to us, Uh, Father, that it would be uh, a rebuke uh, to those who have not yet turned to Jesus Christ, and uh, Father, that it would be an encouragement to us about the grace of God that saves. You are powerful to save. Uh, Father, I pray that it would be an encouragement to us to continue to preach the gospel, Lord, to those that are lost, uh, knowing that as, as long as there's breath in their bodies, Lord, that there is opportunity to preach the good news and my Father, that even people on the, the day of their death, hours, minutes, even seconds away from death, can turn to you. And that because of the grace of God, that your grace is sufficient to cover all of their sins. We have a grace that is greater than our sins. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, bless us today through your word and that you would use me as a weak instrument uh, to be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name, I praise you and give you thanks. Amen. Luke 23 takes us back to the setting of the crucifixion uh, with the words, and when they were come to the place, back in verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, Jesus was brought outside the city gate known as Golgotha in Aramaic, in Greek it's the word cranion, which is uh, where we get our English word cranium from, and in the Latin it would have been the word calvaria, which is where we get the word calvary. It's the word for skull which is how it's translated in verse 33, the place of the skull. And some have argued that the place where the crucifixion uh, crucifixion, uh, took place actually resembled a skull, just the the topography of the the place, uh, which could have been the case. There's at least uh, one suggestion for the place of the crucifixion that resembles a skull. But the best understanding of this term is that Calvary, the Golgotha, the place of the skull, was uh, just a place where crucifixions often took place. And that it's associated with the skull uh, because the skull was the symbol of death. And even today, when we see a picture of a a skull or a picture of a skull and crossbones, we're reminded immediately of death. And that's where Jesus is. He's in the place of death, the place of execution. And according to Hebrews chapter 13, the crucifixion took place outside of the city gates. Hebrews 13 and verse 12 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He suffered outside of the the place of of blessing. He died a death of humiliation, disgrace outside the city. He would have been uh, considered stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was counted as one who was cursed. And we understand that he became that curse for us. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us, and he died for sins that were not his own. But right next to Jesus hung two criminals who were dying there for sins that were their own. And because of their actions, they brought down the curse of crucifixion upon themselves. Verse 33 says that they were criminals. But it's important to understand what kind of 
criminals we're, we're talking about here. The word for criminals here is a, a general word that means an evildoer, a villain. But the word used to describe these same criminals over in Matthew chapter 27 is a specific word that's used for an armed robber. The regular word for a petty thief was a kleptes. Uh, we get our English word kleptomaniac from that word. But the, the word kleptes uh, it wasn't used for these robbers. Kleptes was a thief who would take away from you uh, while you weren't aware of it. You know, like the pickpocket, the person who comes into your house at night when you're unaware. That's not the word that's used for these criminals. In Matthew 27, the word that's used for these criminals is a different word. It's the word lestes. It was the, the word that was used for an armed robber, somebody that didn't mind making his presence known because uh, he'd take what he wants by force, a violent man. It's the same word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan when uh, robbers uh, fell, among, uh, fell onto a person who beat him and stripped him and left him half dead, came out in broad daylight to, to take advantage of a man. That's the word that's used to describe the criminals, the trigger men, armed killers, it only makes sense because of the sentence that was carried out. You didn't go to the cross because of a, you know, a speeding violation, a traffic ticket. You went to the cross because you were a violent criminal. And the Roman government wanted to make an example out of you, you know, to say that this is what happens for those that cross Rome. He was a notorious criminal. So these were violent offenders of the law. And if you need an example of that, all you need to do is think about who would have been and should have been on that middle cross on that day of crucifixion. Who was that middle cross reserved for? That middle cross would have been reserved for a man by the name of Barabbas. And if you think about Barabbas, if you know what, who Barabbas was, uh, he was mentioned in Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 27 in verse 16. It says that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Actually, flip over to the, the book of, of Mark real quick just to, to talk about who this Barabbas was. Mark chapter 15 we find that uh, Barabbas was well-known for his crimes. He was like the, uh, the Al Capone or the Jesse James of Jerusalem. And what kind of crimes did Barabbas commit? Look at verse 7 of Mark chapter 15. It says, Now the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Barabbas was a a well-known murderer. He was the, the leader of a rebellion against Rome that ended in murder. So the Roman government held him in prison in order to make a public example of him, to say this is what, what happens to those who test the power of Rome. And he was scheduled for a public execution for it. But who was Barabbas in prison with? Look again at verse 7. It tells us that Barabbas had been imprisoned with who? With the insurrectionists, plural, who had committed murder in the insurrection. So who were these other two thieves that hung next to Jesus? They would have likely been the same insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. They were Barabbas' partners in crime. So these are the other gang leaders of Barabbas' rebellion who are now hanging next to Jesus. And instead of being crucified with their leader, they're now being crucified with the leader of righteousness. The vile and violent criminals are, are hanging next to the virtuous and infinitely valuable Christ. But not only were these criminals violent, violent offenders, they were also violent, violent revilers. They're revilers of Jesus. Back in uh, Luke, in Luke 23, in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
The word that's used for, for hurling abuse is the, the Greek word blasphemeo. And if you, you don't really need to know Greek to, to kind of get the point of what the, the, the English equivalent would be. They're, they're blaspheming the Son of God. To blaspheme means to, to speak evil of. And when it's used in relationship to God, it speaks about either placing yourself on God's level, that's blasphemy, or placing God down on your level, that's blasphemy. And here they're blaspheming Jesus by placing Jesus down on their level. They're basically saying, you can't really be the Christ, you're not who you say you are, because if you were, you would come down from the cross. They're, they're, they're ridiculing, they're mocking Jesus. You're not who you say you are. You're lower than who you say you are. That's blasphemy. They're saying, you're not a body special. You're just like the rest of us. They're pulling Jesus down to their level. They blasphemed Jesus on the cross, making a mockery of his claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, ridiculing Christ, even in the midst of his own excruciating pain. These, these robbers are still managing to muster up the strength to blaspheme the Son of God. I mean, think about that. Knocking on the the door of death, but they still manage to use some of their last words to squeak out a blasphemy against Christ. And that just tells you the corruption of the human heart, doesn't it? You know, sometimes you would think that being on the verge of death would change something about who you are, but uh, being on the, the verge of death actually brings out who you are. <laughs> and that's the case with this robber, preparing for death on a cross, eternities in front of him, and he's got blasphemy on his lips. Facing death doesn't automatically change the heart. It takes the grace of God to change the heart. I've heard of people who think that they can wait until, you know, their last moments to make a, some kind of deathbed confession. You know, if, if the gospel is true, I'll just wait until I know I'm about to die, and then, then I'll just say, hey, Lord, forgive me for my sins, and I'll be clear of my transgression. But who's to say that you'll have the grace of God to make that confession? I've told the story before, but I, I remember one day I was driving into D.C., and I was going underneath a, a tunnel and, uh, you know, it went from bright to dark really quick, so it takes a little bit for your eyes to acclimate to the, to the difference. And uh, as we're going through the tunnel, there was a guy in front of me on a motorcycle, and as he went into the tunnel, just as he entered into the tunnel, his bike flipped over and he's skidding down with the bike faced, faced sideways, skidding down into the tunnel. And the first thing that I'm thinking is that nobody behind him is even going to see where he is. And as I'm driving past him and I see him laying down on the, the side of the road, there's a car that stops inches away from his helmet, inches away from his head. And the first thing that this man does after he gets up alive without being struck by the vehicle behind him, the first thing that he does is he kicks his bike and he yells out a blasphemy against Jesus Christ. On the verge of death, and that's what is on his lips. Being that close to death doesn't change anything about who you are. Facing death does not automatically change the heart. And you can tell by the words that this criminal is using that his heart hasn't been changed. No remorse for his sins. All he's interested in is a jailbreak. If you look back at Luke 23, again, it talks about this criminal who's hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. If you're the Christ, why don't you get down from here and take us with you? He's asking to be saved, but he's not asking to be saved from his sins. He's asking to be saved from his sentence. Get, get me out of here. I mean, if you can perform a jailbreak, let's do this thing, right? Let's get out of here. He wants to be saved from the punishment of his sins, 
but he does not want to be saved from the pursuit of his sins. You understand the difference? And and, and here's the, the bold arrogance of the rebellious unbeliever. They desire freedom from their sentence, but not freedom from their sins. They love their sins. They just don't love the consequences of their sins. They love their sins, though. John 3, verse 19 says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and what? Men love darkness rather than the light. They love their sins. No remorse for his crimes. He would desire his freedom only to continue in his sinful habits. And he assumes that if one of them has the power to get out, why not do it? And it wasn't just one of these robbers who reviled Jesus in this way. When we cross-reference it with Matthew 27, we find that both robbers were reviling him in the same way. Both of them were reviling Christ, blaspheming Christ, speaking evil of the Son of God. But this is where the narrative takes a divinely appointed twist, and we hear the gospel according to a thief. Because somewhere along the way, one of these vile blasphemers became a firm defender of Jesus. Look at verse 40. It says, But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You ask yourself, where in the world did that come from? (laughs) That wasn't there before. I mean, there... There's something that happened. Something happened imperceptibly within the heart of one of these criminals that changed him from being a blasphemer to being a defender of Jesus. And it's exactly what Jesus describes over in John chapter 3 and verse 8, that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And right here on the cross, this thief has been born again. He's been regenerated. Regeneration has been defined as, as God's instantaneous, instantaneous impartation of eternal spiritual life to people who were formerly spiritually dead but have embraced Christ by faith because of God's grace. In other words, this, this man was spiritually brought to life and believed on Jesus instead of blaspheming Jesus. And it was only the grace of God that made this change. And we can clearly see the effects of the new birth. He's been transformed by the gospel. He's embraced Christ. But what are the elements of the gospel according to this thief? What's his understanding of the gospel message? And this is really an outline that we've been sharing all week during our uh, week of of scatter evangelism, but um, we find it clearly right here in this text. Where does he start? The gospel according to the thief begins with God. Look at verse 40. Do you not even fear God? Starts out with an understanding of who God is. A.W. Pink, who's uh, considered to be one of the most influential evangelical authors of the second half of the 20th century, writes this about this thief. He says this. He says, a short time before, he had mingled his voice with those who were reviling the Savior, but the Holy Spirit had been at work upon him, and now his conscience is active in the presence of God. He's all of a sudden been made aware of who God is, and he's finally moved his thoughts beyond the physical death to think about the eternal death sentence that he has. He's moved beyond the cross to think about what comes after the cross. And Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says that inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. Now all of a sudden he's thinking about the judgment to come. He understood that the physical pain of death was was nothing compared to the severity of God's judgment. In Luke chapter 12 and verse it says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into, t- into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now all of a sudden he's fearful of God, and he's saying, don't you fear God? 
I mean, now I'm thinking about what's coming after. Don't you have, a, have this kind of fear? And somewhere along the line, this thief has a healthy awareness of the God with whom he has to do. And that's where the gospel starts. It begins with an understanding that we are in the presence of the perfect and holy judge. I've often heard the line from unbelievers that only God can judge me. You ever heard anybody say that? Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. But my question is, if, if you believe that, if you believe that only God can judge you, why doesn't that terrify you? <laughs> if you believe that God is the judge, whatever judgment you receive, receive from people is far less compared to the judgment that you will receive from God. And that's what we're trying to prepare people for, for the judgment of God. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hand of the living God. This is the God who the prophet Habakkuk describes as the one whose eyes are too pure to approve of evil. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. And God will not simply sweep our sins under the rug and ignore our rebellion against him. And the very words that we speak are registered in heaven. Can you think about that? And one day you will give an account for every word that you speak. That's terrifying. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. And all of a sudden, he's starting to think about the words that he's saying on the cross, like, we're going to be held accountable for these things. Aren't you fearful of that? You're going to come into judgment for this. 1 Peter 4, 5 says, They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And this thief recognized that even the words that he had just spoken were being piled up against him for the day of wrath. And now he's fearful of this. The fear of judgment has come over him. And uh, for the unbeliever, it's not a problem that he doesn't believe that there's a God. They do believe in a God. They just don't have a fear of God. <laughs> and that's what he's finally come to the conclusion of. I need to fear this God. And he's saying, don't you fear him? You know, the problem with unbelievers is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, that's what Romans 3 speaks about. And as the case is with so many unbelievers, we even spoke to this week, they, they acknowledged that there was a God, but they didn't have a fear of this God. The gospel, according to the thief, begins with the, the fear of God. Number two, it, he develops in his understanding and, you know, speaks about this understanding next as he goes from God to man. In verse 40 to 41 here, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly? We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He recognizes that he's a, a sinner, that his condemnation is just. He's not making any excuses for our sins. We're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. And this is another indication of the kind of criminal that he was, that this was a man who was convicted of murder. And that's why I'm dying. You know, I'm receiving justly what I deserve. You know, those who shed man's blood by, by man shall their blood be shed. And this thief understood that I, I deserve the condemnation that I'm receiving. I'm dying because I deserve to die. He understood this, but he understood that it was more than just a judicial sentence that was being passed down by men. He understood that uh, there was something else that this said about who he was, that he deserved this judgment, not just for the crime of, of murder, but even for every word that he was uttering against God, because that's what he's talking to this other thief about. Even the words will be brought up against God. It's not about the judgment of men. We need to, we're going to have to face God for these things. So he's gone beyond the, the physical judgment to the eternal judgment. We have to face God for all of our lives. That's what's weighing down on him at this time. I have to stand before God. 
and everything that I've ever done in my life is going to be brought up before this judge of all the earth. He's acknowledging that, that yes, we're guilty for the crime of murder, but we're much more guilty before God, our crimes against heaven. And it's not just people that we've violated. We've, we've dishonored God with our actions. And now he's like the prodigal son who recognizes, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I've sinned against heaven. This thief was finally seeing for the first time. He's, he's not objecting to this sentence. He knows he deserves it. Understands that he's unworthy of the least of God's mercies. And this is the same attitude expressed in the tax collector. If you flip back just a couple chapters to Luke 18, you think about the, the tax collector as he came before the Lord that he finally recognized who he was in God's sight. Jesus tells the, the story in verse 10 of, of Luke 18. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And finally, this thief has humbled himself before the Lord, which is why he now turns to Christ. He, he turns to Christ because he knows that there's nothing in myself that I have to offer. And if you're here today and you're not a believer do you understand that it's your sins that bar you from the presence of God? That you're separated from God because of your sins? That you're by nature a child of wrath, the Bible says? Again, A.W. Pink says this. He says, by nature, there is the same depravity inherent within you. And unless a miracle of divine grace has been wrought upon you, there is the same enmity against God and his Christ present in your heart. You may not think so, you may not feel so, you may not believe so, but that does not alter the fact. The word of him who cannot lie declares the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Then he continues to say this, we have been so abased, we have to be abased before we can be exalted. You have to be stripped of your filthy rags of self-righteousness before we're ready for the garments of salvation. That's a beautiful statement. We have to be stripped of our own self-righteousness before we're clothed with the garments of salvation. We have to come to God as beggars, empty-handed, before we can receive the gift of eternal life. We have to take the place of lost sinners before him if we would be saved. Yes, we have to acknowledge ourselves as thieves before we can have a place in God's family. And our sins are not small because they're not against a small sovereign. When we sin, we sin against the Lord of heaven and earth. It's the same thing that, that David acknowledged. My, my sins, I'm, it's against you, against you only have I sinned. We sin against God, and we stand before God as condemned sinners without anything to offer him in our defense. Psalm 130 and verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand before you if every one of my sins is registered? Lord, who is going to stand in your presence? And the wages of our sin is eternal death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, and that's contrasted with eternal life. What, what's the wages of sin? It's death. It's not just death, it's eternal death because it's contrasted with eternal life, and we need to acknowledge that that's what our sins deserve. Lord, I'm not ignoring it. I'm not hiding myself. I'm not making excuses for it. Lord, I deserve that punishment of death. I'm a condemned sinner in your sight, God. 
And now in his confession, he now turns to Jesus Christ, which is where we all need to turn, isn't it? Luke 23, verse 41, he says, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. And now he turns to Christ, but this man has done nothing wrong. (laughs) You see the contrast here? We are sinful, but this is the innocent one. We're, We're sinful, but this man has done nothing wrong. And we have to understand what the thief is saying in this, this context. He's not just saying that Jesus is innocent of the crimes that we've committed. You know, he's not a murderer. You know, no, he's not. But that, he's saying more than that. He's thinking about Jesus as more than just an innocent man because of what he says in the next verse, in verse 42. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's recognizing Jesus as the, the ruler of the kingdom of heaven. And if he's the ruler of the kingdom, then he has to be the what? He's the king. Jesus is the king. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to him. So so think about it. This thief has come to the understanding that Jesus is the sinless savior, that he's the king of heaven, and that he's the son of God. This is the understanding that this, this thief on the cross has come to. And I asked myself a question as I looked at this, is where did he get that understanding from? Where did he get all this knowledge from about who Jesus was? And this is so fascinating and one of the greatest ironies of the cross. Because the enemies of Jesus, who were at the foot of the cross, provided this criminal with all that he needed to come to faith in Christ. Right there at the foot of the cross were the enemies of Jesus. And what are they saying? Look back at verse 35 of Luke. Look back at verse 35. Chapter 23, verse 35. Look at what it says. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were staring at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Over in uh, Matthew chapter 27, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want, but Matthew 27 and verse 40, it says that they were saying, and you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Verse 42, it says, he is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. And then over in Mark chapter 15 and verse 32, it says, let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And think about that. In God's providence, this thief heard all that he needed to hear about Jesus right there in front of him. What is the identity of this person who's next to me? Well, from what they're saying, he's the Christ. He's the chosen one. He's the king of the Jews. He's the son of God. And, and through the words that were being shared in him, beholding the, the, the testimony of Jesus Christ, he comes to the conclusion that what they're saying against him is actually true about him. That, that he is the Christ. He is the son of God. This is all that these people say that he's not. So in the Lord's providence, he brought the truth of salvation to this man. And looking at the Son of Christ, looking at the Son of God, looking at Christ, he beheld him and believed on him. He believed on him is exactly what the scriptures said about who he was. He's the Christ. That's the the Greek word Christos. It means the anointed one. It's the word that was used for a person who had oil ceremonially poured on him to identify him him as having a significant role in Israel. The Greek word uh, Christos and uh, the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's the, the Messiah, the anointed one. And there's, there's one who is the, 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 the chief anointed one. Second Samuel 7 speaks about this one, a special anointed one uh, who would establish a kingdom forever. 
And Psalm 2 speaks about this anointed one as the special one who's been designated to be the ruler of the earth. This is Jesus Christ, and he's the, the son of God. And when we think about being the son of God, it's a, a special designation as the son of God. We understand that we're sons of God by creation, that we've been created by God. You know, in him we live and move and exist and have our being. You know, uh, Acts chapter 17 speaks about that. And Paul says that you're also his offspring. You know, we've all been created by God in a physical way. And then there's a special relationship uh, that we as believers have to, to God, that we've been born again, that we're sons of God by salvation. You know, 1 John 3 speaks about that. You know, beloved, now we are the children of God. But when he's spoken about as the Son of God here, he's not just the Son of God by creation or salvation, but he's the Son of God by identification. He has an identification with God. That's why over in uh, John chapter 10 and verse 30, he says that I and the Father are one, that he has this special designation as the, the Son of God, the only unique Son of God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they were saying that you being a man are making yourself out to be God. He understood that he was God in the flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten son. You relate it to, to the father as one with the father, identifying himself as very God. And this thief, by the grace of God, confessed Jesus as his Lord, as God, as the king, the king of heaven, it had to be clear to this thief that, that Jesus was not on the cross because he was powerless to come down, but because he had a purpose for remaining there. This, this understanding was brought to this thief, and how can you account for such faith in this thief? How can you explain the fact that this dying thief took a suffering, bleeding, crucified man for his God? The only way that you can account for that is that it's the miracle of divine intervention, supernatural his faith in Christ was a miracle of grace. So what was the response to all of this? And this is where we go from God, man, Christ to the response. Look at verse 42, back in Luke 23. What's the response to all of this? And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me. This is a simple cry of faith. Simple cry of repentant faith. And this becomes one of the greatest arguments that we have against any kind of salvation by works, salvation by sacraments. The thief couldn't do anything. His hands were nailed. He couldn't go anywhere. His feet were nailed. He wasn't baptized. He never took communion. He simply turned to the Savior with a broken heart and a sincere faith. That's all he did. A broken heart and a sincere faith. And he says, remember me. Would you remember me? I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death. I know I deserve the judgment and condemnation of God, but would you be merciful to me, the sinner? You know, there's a lot that I would wish that you would forget about me, but would you remember me? Would you remember me, the sinner? And it's evident that this thief repented. He went from ridiculing the Savior to defending the Savior and rebuking those who mocked the Savior. That was an evidence of the change of heart that he had. It was evident that he believed he turned in faith toward Jesus and completely abandoned himself to the mercy of God. Lord, I, there's nothing that I can bring to you. I'm just fully relying on you. And it was because of what Christ was doing at that very moment that Jesus could grant him that assurance that today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know one of the greatest ironies of the cross? 
Jesus was accused of not being able to save others, not being able to save himself. But at this very moment, Jesus was saving others by not saving himself. They're saying, oh, he can save others. He can't save himself. It was because he was on the cross that he saved others. Do you get that? Because he hung on the cross. And it was his death on the cross that was paying for the debt of this sinner. And it's because of the cross that he paid for the debt, the debt of those of us who are sinners. He paid our debt on the cross. One of our hymns says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And the assurance that Jesus was able to give the sinner is found in verse 43. He says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today you'll be with me in purgatory, but today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because the moment that he believed, the sinner was declared righteous in the sight of God. The moment he believed, Romans 4 verse 5 says, but to, to, to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, you need to you know, write that one down somewhere, to the one who does not work, Romans 4 5, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul says that we who believe in Christ, that we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And we're declared righteous by faith, not by works. Now, those who have faith will demonstrate that faith by their works, but it's not because of their works that they're justified before God. We're declared Righteous by faith and faith alone. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives, right? And if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. And you can know that heaven belongs to you if you trust in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And your relationship with God can be restored. You can have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Even the word paradise that Jesus uses here, today you will be with me in paradise. It actually reminds us of our relationship being restored back to God. The word that's used for paradise uh, is, uh, uh, is translated from the, the Hebrew into the, to the Greek. And it's the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word for the paradise that was lost back in Genesis. So it's a reminder that the paradise that was lost will be regained, that we can restore our relationship with God, that all who know Christ will immediately enter into that relationship with our Heavenly Father. So even as we approach death, and even as this thief approached death, he could be of good courage because to be absent from his body was to be present with the Lord and to be restored in his relationship to God. And that's how we are restored to our relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And the glorious, powerful, and encouraging truth that we find in these verses is that once believers depart from this life, that we're immediately at home with Christ. Today you will be with me, he said, in paradise. No lapse of time. Grammatically, the phrases to be absent and to be at home explain one another. To be absent from one is to be present in the other. The moment you leave this earth, you're immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. No soul sleep, no period of dormancy, immediately in the presence of Christ, 
permanently and forever. So even though as believers we face death, we will never face a separation from Christ. Nothing can separate us, not even death, from the love of Christ Jesus. Amen? Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to God be the glory for the great things he has done. Amen? To God be the glory, great things he has done. So love to the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, right? And opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. And uh, Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done through Jesus. And Lord, that you've transformed us from those that reviled Christ, those that were considered unworthy, those who deserve our condemnation, just as this thief did, and uh, that you've changed us from being enemies to being your friends and even more sons and daughters of the living God. Father, I pray that if there are any here today who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, that they would see themselves as uh, those who are worthy of death, uh, not just a physical death, but an eternal death and separation from God. And uh, Father, that uh, through hearing the words of Christ, uh, that he is the Son of God, that he is the, the Christ, that he is the King of heaven, uh, Father, that today that they would be brought near uh, to Christ and that they would fully rely on him, abandoning uh, any hope of uh, trusting in themselves and fully rely on Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we uh, pray for those that we've spoken to even this week, uh, sharing the good news, Lord, that uh, this treasure would be theirs, this gift of eternal life. And uh, Father, we're just uh, thankful that uh, we, as those who believe and trust in Christ, Lord, that we have the confidence uh, that to be absent from this body is to be present and to be at home with you. And as, even as you spoke to the thief, that today, today, as Christ said, that you will be with me in paradise. And uh, Father, we, we look forward to the, the day uh, that we will see your face. We long to see your face, Jesus. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.